Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Desert Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Leo Hanian, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Economic Policies of the 2020 Democratic Presidential Candidates, and it was recorded on March 25th, 2019. It's nice to see everyone, and I mentioned Tom, you know, a little foot surgery is not going to keep me away. Uh, I love to get together with you, and uh, just a small secret, I do all the cooking in my home, and I haven't been able to cook now for about the last month, so this was my first chance to get a real meal. I took a photo of that chicken salad we had, sent it to our youngest, who's 12. He texted back and said, Dad, I'm jealous. I'm stuck here with the worst cook in the world. <laughs> and, I, and that was absolutely delicious, but I'm not going to tell my wife that. Uh, all right, well, I'm happy to be with you today. I'm going to say a few words about uh, some of those who have announced candidacy for, um, for president uh, on the Democratic side. And I'm going to start out by saying that economic performance is just a fundamentally important predictor for how people typically vote in a presidential election. What I'll say right now is that given the way our economy is performing, if the election was held now, and if this was a typical political year, the president would almost certainly win. And I think the president does deserve credit for many of the, econo uh, the economic improvements we've had uh, since he took office. So I've, I've, I've noted some of the statistics here. Um, and if any of you would like a copy of these slides, please let the Hoover staff know, or you can <clears throat> feel free to write to me, and I'll, I'll give you a copy. So economic growth uh, since Trump took office has been almost 3%. Obama was 2.2%, and I took out Obama's first year, which was very poor due to the recession. Um, so about seven-tenths of a percent point per year more under, under Trump. Uh, the labor market's really improved. Uh, today, 80% of prime-age adults, that means those who are between 25 to 54 years of age, 80% of that demographic group work the all-time high we've ever seen is 82%. Uh, so that's a very healthy economy as well. I'll also note that <clears throat> what I call the corrected unemployment rate declined from 17.5% during the last recession <clears throat> to 7.2% today. 7% is the all-time low. Now, what I mean by the corrected unemployment rate Take the normal unemployment rate and adjust it for the fact there's some people who work part-time because they have not been able to find a full-time job. Some people would like to work, but their job prospects are so poor that they've left the labor force. So the corrected unemployment rate takes care of these types of changes. So this is also a very healthy economic statistic. And inflation remains low at 1.6%. Now, a number of economists have statistically analyzed how economic performance seems to bear on to presidential voting. And when all is said and done, some equations that economists have estimated show that Trump would win today 53% to, to 47% um, because of how well the economy is doing. Now, this assumes that we were in a normal year. Well, this is not a normal year. 
So when we look at polls and presidential approval rating, Trump's approval rating is a 41%. Now, it will be interesting later this week to see how that changes given what was happened with the Mueller report being released. I suspect that will go up. Now, for comparative purposes, to give you a sense of where the president stands, I've noted uh, the approval ratings of the three previous presidents, Obama, W. Bush, and Clinton, at the very same point in, in the presidency. Um, now, Obama presided over just a very, very poor economy, and at the same point in time, Obama had a 49% approval rating. Uh, w. Bush, in uh, t early 2003, the economy was not particularly strong yet. W. Bush had a 55% approval rating. Now, economic performance under Clinton, not quite as good as what we're seeing right now, but fairly similar. Uh, and Clinton even had a higher approval rating than uh, Trump. And I've noticed, I've put in parentheses, some of the challenges that President Clinton faced at that time, including Whitewater, Monica Lewinsky, Paula Jones, running out the Lincoln bedroom, and the list goes on. Uh, but just goes to show you that this really puts President Trump's approval rating in perspective. Uh, and obviously you all know that th these are very polarized times. Uh, and President Trump is somewhat of a lightning rod. So what I'll do today is talk about the economic policies of some of the leading Democratic candidates who've announced. Um, as uh, economics, I think, will play a role, but, but other issues will play a role as well, I think, when it comes to what, what decisions voter makes. And um, if there was one overall theme I could give to those currently who have announced candidacy or who are likely to announce, I would call it a race to the left. And the candidates whom I'll talk about today will include Sanders, Joe Biden, who everyone thinks almost certainly will run, and he's, he's tipped his hand somewhat in a recent speech that he will run. Uh, Kamala Harris from California, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker from New Jersey, and Beto O'Rourke from Texas. Right now, there's roughly 17 candidates who've announced, um, many of whom I think will not have much name recognition, many of whom will not be able to generate significant enough campaign donations to be able to, to, to stick it out for the long haul. So I think <clears throat> these six names are names that you will see from now until, until the primaries and the caucuses. Okay, um, now to give you a sense of just how far I think the Democratic Party has evolved in just the last three years, we go back to 2016, and there was really what, what I would call one far-left candidate, and that was Bernie Sanders. Uh, today, 2020, I would say roughly five of the six leading candidates, those whom I'll talk about today, I think would be considered far left, or at least you know, close to far left, and that would be Sanders, Harris, Warren, O'Rourke, and Booker. Um, so you can see just in these last three years how much the Democratic Party has shifted. Um, and it goes beyond those who are running for president, it really goes throughout the Democratic Party. Um, and I'll go so far as to suggest that those Democratic lawmakers who've been in office for an awful long time, um, who, are, who are demonstrably leaders in the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, Patrick Leahy, Chuck Schumer, Dianne Feinstein, 
I would say they're party leaders today really in name only. Uh, they are not the ones within the Democratic Party setting the party agenda. That agenda is being set by a very, very different group of politicians. Um, and those who are setting that agenda today, I think really is the outcome of two evolutions within the Democratic Party. A very long run evolution and then a much, and a much shorter evolution just in the last couple of years. In the last 25 years, the Democratic Party uh, on trend has become a much more liberal party. So the Gallup poll every year surveys those across political parties and asks them their views on a variety of political and economic and social issues. So I went back and I, and I tracked that. And back in 1994, so this was in Clinton's first term, um, only 25% of those in the Democratic Party self-identified as being politically liberal. 50% self-identified as politically moderate, and then 25% self-identified as conservative. 75% of registered Democratic voters were either conservative or moderate from a political point of view in 1994. Today, 51% of Democrats identify as politically liberal. Only 13% identify as politically conservative. And to put that in even more context, I suspect that the way voters look at the terminology liberal today is probably different than the way they looked at that terminology in 1994. So that really gives you a sense over the last 25 years of where the Democratic Party has been and, and where it is now. And then in the last three years, we've seen really a very sharp change in the Democratic Party, and I would call this the Bernie Sanders effect. So we all were in, we were all here in 2016 watching the presidential candidacies, and Sanders just came out of nowhere. I mean, he literally came out of nowhere with almost no support from the National Democratic Party and getting $20 and $100 contributions from, from individuals. And he won nearly 1,900 delegates to Hillary's 2,200 delegates. And he received overwhelming support from voters under 35. And Sanders presented a policy menu that was really, at that point in time, just unheard of, both in terms of the individual components of the policies from an economic point of view, and then just the fact that he was putting all of these policies together. These very much are socialist policies, and that's not really my definition. That would be Sanders' definition. He says he's been a democratic socialist for the last 40 years. And Sanders, more often than not, identifies himself as independent because the Democratic Party is simply not liberal enough or socialist enough for his views. So Sanders came out in 2016 and talked about enormous increases in tax rates, including on corporate taxes. He talked about nationalized health care and the elimination of private health care. A $15 an hour per hour minimum wage, substantial trade protectionism. These would all be categories which we would at some level call socialist. And I would say for roughly a six month period within that democratic campaign, he really defined the Democratic Party agenda. And in every debate and every campaign stop, Hillary really had to pivot left on every issue, ranging from trade to financial regulation 
to healthcare. And the way I look at what happened in 2016 within the Democratic Party is that Sanders really, even though he lost the nomination, Sanders won from the perspective of he really strengthened the far left of the Democratic Party and he helped bring to life a new group, which I would say is now 99% setting the Democratic Party's, what I will call a socialist agenda. And again, this is not me. This is what Sanders would call it. And those who are setting that agenda, that's what they would call it. And I would say Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer are watching from behind right now. So who are these new party leaders? Well, they're very young and they're unabashedly socialist. And uh, I would say they're also critical and almost the point of being contemptuous of, of America and some of our past history. So those party leaders include uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, known as AOC, and uh, Ilhan Omar from, uh, from Minnesota, uh, who's Muslim. And, this, you know, and this, this relatively small group has displaced a very large and older and established group of politicians within the Democratic Party. Now, and the next statistics I'm going to show you is noteworthy for two reasons. 76% of congressional Democrats are 50 or older. And 40%, 40% of congressional Democrats are 65 and older. And despite this size difference, between the older established Democratic leaders such as Pelosi and people such as Ocasio-Cortez, the old guard really has lost control of the party. The agenda is being set by AOC and Omar and others. And when we think about five or 10 years from now, many in that 65 and over group are gonna be retiring. And we need to think about who is going to be replacing them within the Democratic party. Will it be people, more people like Ocasio-Cortez or people who are somewhat more moderate um, uh, such as the, uh, the older Democrats. Okay, so here's the cover of Time Magazine this week of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The, the, the phenom. She is now considered to be the second most recognizable politician in the world behind, behind the president. And what is just remarkable is that she was not a politician before she was elected to the House. She was working as a bartender. And she was an extra in music videos. Um, and, and, and she literally has come out of nowhere. Um, and what's also interesting about Ocasio-Cortez and, and those other very young Democrats is that their proposals um, are not addressing the needs of their constituents. Despite that, they've become incredibly popular. So some of you read about Amazon was going to locate a second national headquarters in New York City. They were going to receive roughly $3 billion in subsidies that New York State and New York City had promised them, and many other states and locations had promised subsidies to Amazon as well. Amazon was going to deliver most likely $15 to $20 billion in additional economic activity. The state of New York was absolutely thrilled by this. Ocasio-Cortez came out and said, we don't need Amazon. We can, t we can fill those jobs up from mom and pop stores. Well, mom and pop stores don't pay executives $150 or $200,000 per year. Amazon decided they're not gonna go to New York anymore. New York state politicians were livid. 
the people who live in Ocasio-Cortez's district should be livid because they are losing Amazon. And yet, she is embraced by the Democratic Party right now for reasons I simply cannot fathom from the standpoint of her constituents. Um, she's also supported enormous tax increases. You all have read in some, at, at some level about her Green New Deal, uh, which would probably cost north of $100 trillion. Um, Ilhan Omar within the Democratic Party has been incredibly crit, crit, uh, critical of Israel. Um, these first two red quotes are from AOC. She said, capitalism is irredeemable. The status quo, meaning America today, is garbage. She also went on to say that my generation has not known prosperity. Well, this is the most prosperous time in the history of the United States. This is the most peaceful time in the history of the United States. Um, it is remarkable just how little these folks know. Um, Joe Biden, probably going to run for president. Biden called Mike Pence a decent guy. He had to withdraw that in response to criticisms from this group of people. Ilhan Omar has been highly critical of Israel and politicians within her party who support Israel, uh, to the point where a resolution was drawn up that was going to denounce anti-Semitism. That failed. The resolution was watered down to denounce all hate of any racial group or any political group. And in fact, it contains specific language about denouncing hate for Muslims. Ilhan Omar was quoted saying, this is a great day. It's the first US vote to condemn anti-Muslim bigotry. So a very small group of very young people in the Democratic Party are very clearly setting the agenda. Uh, and it's an agenda that goes very, very, that deviates very sharply from the Democratic Party of, of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. So with that backdrop, let me talk a little bit about the policies of the 2020 candidates. And what you're going to see across these people is that there's a great deal of consensus around economic policies that no one would have thought about in terms of consensus across candidates three or four years ago. I suspect what you're going to see is almost all candidates either have already or will sign on to some form of the Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal is really not a policy proposal to address climate change. It's really a catch-all manifesto for what young politicians within the Democratic Party think is wrong with America. It includes making statements such as providing a living wage for those who are not willing to work. Not able to work, not willing to work. And uh, my 12-year-old son was watching the news and he heard this and he said, Dad, how could this be? <laughs> won't, won't, will anybody work? And I said, yeah, you're going to become an economist when you grow up. <laughs> um, but almost all candidates will sign on to some version of that. Um, almost all candidates are advocating a substantial hike in tax rates. And um, what I will say is that I think one of the best economic policies implemented by President Trump and the Congress was to reduce the statutory, capital, uh, the statutory corporate tax rate to make it competitive 
within one or two percentage points of other countries within uh, among the advanced countries such as Europe. Um, every person in Congress, well I would say every person in Congress as of 2016 and before knew that had to be done. That did not get done under President Obama, it did get done under President Trump and that's one of the most important reasons along with very needed regulatory reforms why economic growth today is about 1% higher every year than it was under, under um, President Obama. And that's $1.8 trillion of income every year, higher under Trump than under Obama. Um, that would go away, uh, at least according to the policy positions of the 2020 Democratic candidates. Almost all are advocating for what people call Medicare for all. And as you read about these candidates and watch them debate, there's an important footnote on Medicare for all. Some such as Sanders and Warren and Kamala Harris, Medicare for all would be in the, really the elimination of private health insurance and private health care. Uh, others such as Booker, it's hard for me to say Booker is one of the more conservative people among a group, uh, but Cory Booker is among the more conservative in this group. Others would not, at least so far, would do away with uh, private health insurance and private health care. Um, a $15 an hour minimum wage. Significant trade restrictions. We've come a long ways towards reducing regulations that were put in place between 2000 Eight and 2016, that would be reversed. Okay, so let me begin with Sanders since he's on top of the polls. Um, Sanders and Biden tend to be the leading, uh, the leading candidates when we look at polls right now with the others I mentioned, uh, you know, just below that. Uh, and I'm gonna spend some time on Sanders really because he is the foundation for this new set of candidates. Um, and Sanders absolutely calls himself a socialist. Elizabeth Warren won't do that, even though she is somewhat more extreme than Sanders, but Sanders is very proud to be a socialist. And in the 1980s, he visited, um, you know, it's interesting now, you know, when I'm, you know, as I teach young people at UCLA, they'll say things like, and what was the USSR? Uh, Sanders visited the USSR back in the 1980s and thought it was just a magnificent place. And he, he visited in 1988, roughly two years before it came crashing down. He thought Fidel Castro was a great leader. Um, and very recently, this I've got a quote here from Sanders. Uh, it's about a month old now. And this was shortly after he announced his candidacy for 2020. And Sanders is quoted as saying, morally and economically, the U.S. can't thrive when so few have so much and so many have so little. Well, in a moment, I'll just tell you how factually wrong this statement is. In that same speech, he said, we can learn so much from democratic socialist countries like Denmark and Sweden. Well, that is factually wrong on many dimensions as well. And what's really, I think, concerning about Sanders, not just his ideas about what creates prosperity in a society, but he makes blanket statements based on facts that simply just don't exist. And the facts that do exist are 180 degrees different than what he thinks. 
Okay, so what about this idea? Morally and economically, the U.S. can't thrive when so few have so much and so many have so little. And I would say that statement, along with issues about environmental concerns, really are the two defining themes of those voters who are gravitating towards Bernie Sanders or AOC or Elizabeth Warren. The idea that we live in a country of haves and absolute have-nots. And the haves don't care about the environment and are going to damage it for future generations. That's really what's driving a lot of voters, particularly a lot of young people. Um, all right, so what are the facts about this statement? The US can't thrive when so few have so much and so many have so little. And this is really, this is right out of Karl Marx. Well, what are the facts? The facts are the US has the highest tax progressivity in the world. Now, what that means is that the marginal federal income tax rate rises in the United States as your adjusted gross income rises. In no country in the world does that rise faster or more than the United States. The U.S. already has a tax system which taxes those with high adjusted gross incomes at a much heavier rate. And you know this from, from um, Mitt Romney's statement that really hurt him in 12 when he said, you know, there's 47% of people who don't even pay federal income taxes. They're not going to vote for me. Romney was absolutely right. There are 47%. Today it's about 50% of Americans who don't pay federal income tax. And the reason is because we have this incredibly progressive tax schedule. Nowhere in the world is it more progressive. Okay, second fact. The U.S. redistributes a greater percent of taxable income than any other country but France. Germany, no. Sweden, no. Denmark, no. Norway, no. None of these countries do more than the United States. And because the U.S. is so much wealthier than France, we distribute more income than any country in the world, not even close. We're already doing what Sanders claims we're not doing. We're already doing what he wants to be done. Now, here's a statistic. If you remember one statistic, I'd love you to remember this. At the household level, Consumer spending per person within the household. At the bottom 10%, so the 10% lowest earning households, their consumer spending per person is about a factor of three smaller than those at the very top. About a factor of three difference. What are the differences in income between that bottom 10% and top 10%? Wage and salary income differences a factor of 100. That's how much we redistribute. There's a hundredfold difference in wage and salary income at the top 10% versus the bottom 10%. And yet that 100 times difference is squeezed down to a threefold difference when we measure consumption expenditures. And that's because we do already redistribute so much. And in fact, we redistribute so much that when we look at how much consumer spending there is per person, at that bottom 10 percentile U.S. household, their standard of living is much higher 
than a median household in Europe. Their standard living is higher than the top one-third, than the bottom two-thirds of households within Europe. The idea that so many have so little, that simply is just factually incorrect. And yet, that's what Sanders thinks is going on here. And what about this statement, we can learn so much from democratic socialist countries like Denmark and Sweden. Well, Denmark and Sweden at one time were very clearly socialist countries. But Bernie must have been asleep for a while because that ended in 1992. Since 1992, there have been enormous free market reforms in Denmark, Sweden, and other Northern European countries. In fact, they've had so many reforms that the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative economic think tank, the Heritage Foundation constructs economic freedom rankings each year by country. Uh, Denmark and Sweden are ranked as more economically free than the United States. Why is that? They have, in every case, except the level of taxes, they have more economic freedom than we do. I'll tell you about that in de detail in a minute. Um, the Danish prime minister said, after, after Sanders made this statement, he came out and said, I'll make this clear, Denmark is free. We are far from a socialist planned economy that Mr. Sanders thinks we are. And if Sanders knew what was going on in Sweden and Denmark, he would be shocked. They have nearly a flat tax. So at the Hoover Institution, Hoover has been advocating for a flat tax for, for a long time and has produced an, a lot of scholarship about the benefits of a flat tax for everyone within society. Well, Sweden and Denmark listened. They have nearly a flat tax. A flat tax is very, very efficient. That's not what Bernie Sanders wants. Sweden and Denmark have school vouchers. Think Bernie Sanders would be okay with school vouchers? For-profit schools. That's something Bernie Sanders wants. Very little regulation outside of some basic safety regulation. They are now in the process of Bernie Sanders wants European-style nationalized health care. Well, Sweden and Denmark are in the process of privatizing much of that health care. Sweden is on its way to a 20% corporate income tax. That's not what Bernie Sanders wants. He simply doesn't know. He simply has his facts wrong. And this is really very dangerous, independent of what a person's views about what constitutes productive economic policies. You've got to get your facts right. And he simply is not anywhere close to having the facts right. Now, he thinks they're democratic socialist countries. Well, they were between 1965 and 1992. And those, that period was a complete disaster for countries like Sweden and Denmark. 70, between 65 and 92, the amount of economic activity that went through the hands of the government rose to 74% in Sweden. So three out of every four dollars found its way through the channels of government. And the number of private sector jobs lost in Sweden during that period of time, well, I did a calculation to put in the context of the US labor market today. It would have been as if we lost 17 million private sector jobs in the United States. 
the Swedish and Danish people revolted. They just, they, the economy was disastrous and new governments were elected in the early 1990s. And since then, there have been enormous free market reforms, some of which I've, I've noted here. And those reforms continue today. Mr. Sanders just has the facts wrong. Yes, we can learn from Sweden and Denmark. They're making some really good changes in K through 12 schooling, such as school vouchers and increasing school competition. But that's not the world Sanders thinks they have, and I think he would find it to be anathema if he actually knew what these facts were. Joe Biden. Right now, Biden is the second ranked, and assuming Biden runs, he would be the second ranked uh, in polls of uh, popularity for the Democratic uh, candidates. And so I would call Biden, a, you might call him a traditional populist. So his whole goal is to restore the middle class. I always find it interesting and somewhat depressing that political candidates, particularly the Democratic Party, they're always talking about the middle class, the lost middle class, and how all the money is going to the upper class. In America, we live in a classless society, or we should strive to live in a classless society. There are middle-income earners, and high-income earners, and low-income earners, but we don't live in a class society anymore, but it's, it disappoints me that politicians refer to that. Biden wants to make college free, as does Sanders, as does many other Democratic uh, candidates, and he also wants to triple the existing child tax credit. Okay, well, college is costly, as, is the, as would be tripling the child tax credit. How is he going to pay for that? He would substantially raise taxes on capital income, including the corporate income tax, which we just very successfully reduced and which is paying enormous economic dividends. Um, all the jobs being created since Trump took office, a big reason why is because of the reduction in regulation and because of the cut in corporate tax rate. Um, Biden uh, is likely to have a Medicare for all plan. That really has become, I think, a litmus test for candidates in the Democratic Party. Uh, previously, he has talked about returning to the Paris Accord regarding environmental issues. Um, but again, I think it will, if it's not a litmus, te litmus test yet, it will be soon. He will sign on to or come up with some form of what the Democratic Party calls a Green New Deal. And you will see a Joe Biden who will be a much, much more liberal Joe Biden than he was just two years ago. Okay, so for those of you from California, our own Kamala Harris. Um, I would say she's really quite similar to Sanders. Um, Green New Deal, absolutely, yes, she signed on to that. Medicare for all, tax hikes, $15 minimum wage, yes. Um, and you know, at Hoover, a number of the Hoover economists write frequently, conduct research frequently about labor markets and about the impact of changing the minimum wage on individuals' opportunities. And the empirical evidence is almost always the same. What we do by raising the minimum wage is simply destroy job opportunities for the youngest people, teenagers who haven't had an opportunity to build up enough skills and accumulate a long enough record of experience to be competitive for those jobs. Um, if you're interested in California economics in particular, I write a weekly column at Hoover. Uh, it's called California on Your Mind. I've been writing that roughly about the last eight or nine months. Um, 
California policies were driving me sufficiently nuts. I needed to have some outlet. <laughs> so I write this once a week. Um, and my column next week will be about how California's increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour is going to affect the restaurant industry. Because the new $15 an hour minimum wage is going to affect restaurant workers who previously were exempt because of the issue regarding tips. Um, and I estimate that we might lose half a million restaurant jobs over the next five years. Um, automation is taking the place of all those humans. Robots are cheap, <laughs> they're getting cheaper, they don't go on strike, um, and they're simply displacing individuals uh, in, um, in restaurant establishments. Um, there's even a robot called Flippy who flips hamburgers, who has software that can, that can figure out what's the temperature of the hamburger and to take it off the grill and to actually put it on the bun. Um, so all these things are taking place. And if you want to know when Canada's talk about we have to have a living wage, it's just ridiculous that these people are trying to feed a family of, of four on a minimum wage. Well, how many individuals are head of household work full-time at the minimum wage, 0.4%. 0.4% head of households work full-time at the minimum wage. And, that's, and they simply identified themselves as head of household. There may be someone else in that household earning far above minimum wage. The minimum wage to $15 per hour would be the single most devastating negative policy that one could, that one could force on our young people. Um, Yet all, literally all, of the, uh, of the Democratic candidates sign on for this. Harris also wants to provide reparations for descendants of slavery. Hasn't gone into any details about that. And you know, another particularly bad economic policy by Kamala Harris is that she would have a housing tax credit for those whose rental payments exceed 30% of income. That's exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. We have a housing crisis in this country, and particularly here in California, because we don't build enough housing. It's a supply problem. It's not a demand problem. And yet, Senator Harris is going to incentivize people to spend more of their income on rent. Uh, that just simply is going to be a bad, bad economic policy. So I'm concerned about Harris as well. Um, Elizabeth Warren, well, she goes beyond Sanders. She signs on to everything else Sanders and Harris do. Uh, and then you know, uh, Warren made a big splash by suggesting a pure wealth tax, as high as 3%. Now, this would be on very, very high net worth individuals. But imagine you're holding, imagine you're holding your assets in securities bearing less than 3%. It literally, then it's simply a confiscation of your wealth because the tax exceeds the return. Uh, and she thinks this will have no economic dislocations whatsoever. Now, if you think, well, how could she even think about that? Well, take a look at the next bullet. She also has introduced a piece of legislation, or uh, she's trying to introduce it. Um, and she says corporations must make a positive impact on society. Corporations are no longer responsible to shareholders, but rather to society in general. Um, so these really are economic ideas where there's literally no empirical support or economic logic support for. 
And in, uh, in Clint's earlier session, some questions came up about the Electoral College, and she is one candidate who wants to eliminate the Electoral College. I squeezed together Cory Booker and Beto O'Rourke for time perspective, and also because they're somewhat similar. And there are, they are, yes, on the Green New Deal, yes, on the higher taxes, yes, on the minimum wage. Um, Booker has an idea of another renter tax credit, somewhat similar to Harris. Um, he has some ideas that are more sensible, such as changing, zone, changing zoning laws uh, and implementing enterprise zones, which goes back to Jack Kemp. Um, so I think those policies are much, much better. And for that reason, I would call Cory Booker less extreme. And again, any group that has Cory Booker is sort of out to the right is a, is a fairly interesting group. Um, O'Rourke wants to have universal preschool, and O'Rourke also wants to eliminate the Electoral College. Um, so there are similarities across these candidates. It is by far the politically most liberal set of candidates I think we've seen in this country. They would have a reasonable shot, um, certainly more liberal than George McGovern in 1972. Um, so we should be concerned, and what, what can and, and what we should we do? Well, people who are gravitating to this set of candidates are concerned. And I think in the abstract are concerned for good reasons. So what does Sanders always talks about? He talks about the elites, the elites in a rigged system. Those words are part of literally every speech he makes. Donald Trump, running in 2016, said very similar things. He talked about the importance of elites in Washington and draining the swamp. And Trump was elected because states traditionally voting for Democratic candidates vote for Trump. Uh, and this is something we do need to pay attention to. Now, elites have influence in, in all economies. Let's not pretend it's anything else. But how do we limit the influence of elites? Expanding markets is freedom. That's how we limit the influence of elites. As we deviate from a free market economy, that promotes the influence of elites. Markets is where everybody has a chance to buy a good or service or to sell a good or service. Nobody's being excluded. That's where elites gain traction. Elites don't gain much traction in a market economy. I like to call markets the great protector, the profit motive, that evil profit motive from the standpoint of socialism. The profit motive doesn't discriminate. Dollars are the same color, whether it comes from a black or a white or old person or young person a Muslim or a Jew. Dollars don't know anything about that. They just go into the cash register and we don't really care about where they came from. That's how markets protect everyone. But governments protect those who support incumbent politicians. So, um, Tom, how am I doing in terms of time? Okay, uh, so get, do I have one minute? Okay, uh, so let me just talk briefly about some areas where we can make a lot of progress, where elites do have enormous influence. Subsidies. I would love to eliminate them, unless it's really demonstrable that they would benefit society, uh, but in a minimum we can reduce them, and that's what I think we should start trying that conversation. Taxes. For years at Hoover, we've been talking about simplifying the tax code by eliminating a lot of preferential tax treatments. In education, introducing competition. The most important thing we can do for our kids and our grandkids and future generations is be able to provide a large supply of productive schools. Well, we don't do that very well when families are stuck in a monopoly school situation and in which 
teacher unions are protecting poorly performing teachers. And Hoover's been on the, um, Hoover's really been on the forefront of advancing those types of policies. Um, in terms of uh, environmental concerns, I'll say again, Hoover's taken the lead on this. Uh, Secretary Schultz put together a carbon tax proposal that's been signed by 3,300 economists, really, uh, independent of partisan issues. Um, and I'm sorry I've gone over. Let me, um, let me go, sorry, let me go over and, um, and conclude. Um, I love this quote by Ronald Reagan. There's a danger of believing government by an elite group is superior to government for, by, and of the people. Well, I think a lot of the folks are gravitating towards Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They worry about elites. Reagan worried about elites. Uh, Reagan pushed us more towards freedom and markets, and we had a remarkably successful economy while under his, under his stewardship. We've always embraced freedom. We've always embraced market solutions. And what I hope that you'll uh, take away from this is we need political leaders, independent of Democrats, or Republicans, or independents, who can demonstrate that free and fair markets are the solution, not the problem, and who can help reduce political divides that become so important today. So uh, with that, thank you very much. I'm happy, to, uh, I'm happy to take questions and comments. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.